Welcome to the Colby Daniels Podcast. What's going on, everyone? Hope you're having a great week. I mentioned in the last podcast, this week feels a little bit different. There's just a little bit of something in the air that has me excited, and I think it's the return of Major League Baseball this weekend, as well as the first scrimmage games from the NBA. I caught some of the Rangers preseason matchup against the Rockies last night, and it was just great to watch live baseball. I didn't really know what to expect in terms of the crowd situation and how that was going to look. But to be honest with you, it didn't really bother me. It wasn't really something that I felt like was a distraction from the game or felt weird not seeing fans. The part that was bizarre was the pumped-in crowd noise. It just seems awkward, and not necessarily because I, I thought it was overbearing at any point in time, but I think there's just something to be said for what your eyes are seeing and what your ears are hearing at the same time and understanding how fake that noise is. That really stood out to me. And I didn't think it would be a big deal. And it's not necessarily a big deal. It it just, it was something that I just kind of thought like, huh, that's awkward. And I didn't really expect it to be. So I'll be curious to see how they maybe play with the crowd noise on these preseason broadcasts before they start regular season play. And maybe that's something that they, they do away with altogether. Maybe it's something that becomes a very minor aspect. But I thought it was noticeable last night, at least in the Rangers broadcast. But as expected with all, you know, it's preseason for everyone. So they're going to attempt to find the best way to do this. And, and nobody has a blueprint of the best way right now because we're all kind of learning how best to approach things in this new format. And the people running the broadcast are no different. So I would imagine going to experiment with things and figure out what works best. But regardless of the crowd noise situation or any of that, I'm just excited it's back. We also have the return of the NBA as far as their first scrimmages in just a couple days, so that's exciting as well. And I'm I'm curious what that's going to look like also from a visual standpoint and then the audio aspect, because again, I I just didn't expect it to seem weird with the baseball thing, but it it, it did kind of seem a little bit odd. Anyway, we have an exciting guest today. He is the authority in autograph authentication. He works for Beckett Authentication. You know him as the guy from Pawn Stars. He's seriously one of the nicest dudes around. And we had a great conversation. So, guest today on the Colby Daniels Podcast, Steve Grad. Steve, what's going on today? Well, you know, just uh, spending a, a fun, hot day in Arizona. That's usually how it turns out for me. Is it already hot there? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it gets to about 100, 105 every day. This is southern, so near Tucson. Um, but it gets pretty hot. You know, usually by, I'd say by like 10 o'clock, it's 95. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we usually are able to, my son and I get out and get exercise like before noon, and it's not too bad until the afternoon, and that's when we uh, are inside the middle of the day. But like an idiot last weekend, I was in the yard doing yard work from like noon to 4, and uh, didn't drink any water, got overheated. Uh, the The amount See. of vodka I had the night before probably contributed to that as well. But yeah, it was kind of a rough situation. You're dehydrated. Nice move. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Nice and responsible. It, you know, it's one of those things that you're like, I'll be fine. Like, it's not going to happen to me. And then there you go. And then bam, it happens. I've done it before, by the way. Yeah. But I don't do, I usually don't do yard works. Yeah, I'm not in your situation. I probably was doing that, you know, many years ago when I grew up in Chicago, the humidity, the heat gets to you. And I just did this whole car tour um, out to Florida and back from Arizona. And uh, I, I remember how much I hate humidity. 
<laughs> what uh, what took you to Arizona from Chicago? Uh, well, actually, it's just been all over the place, really. You know, uh, 2000, I'd say 2002, I moved from Chicago to Pennsylvania to join forces with PSA DNA. And I left PSA DNA, or I had to move from Pennsylvania to California. And then California was PSA's headquarters where I worked out up to 2016. And and then 2016, we started Beckett and I've gotten some more flexibility now, on, you know, as to where I want to live and where I want to go. And to tell you the truth, just because we have our headquarters in Dallas doesn't mean I need to be there or live there. So we have a staff there and I could, you know, I go all over the place, really, to be honest with you. How has traveling been throughout this whole period and, and just the whole setup? Because I imagine it's got to be pretty strange weird and strange uh let's say last year good reference i flew about 160,000 170,000 miles right in that ballpark i went to europe four times this year uh the last time i got on a plane was march 13th 14th i believe from chicago to arizona and then after that i've not gotten on an airplane uh barely flown this year at all i was in england uh end of february early march for a show and that's it it's really weird because the the business i always say to people it's like that work is out there you know anywhere we go people bring us work to do so we have to be on the road and it's a lot of travel and it's being on the road almost constantly um and it's a grind and now it's changed to where i just have people send me their stuff but you know there's always certain people that say hey, I don't feel safe about this. I don't feel good about this. So um, we take submissions in our office, but I also have a lot of our big customers send us stuff and I do that and I do some pickups or drop offs. So it works out pretty good, but I will tell you, this is weird. You know, um, all the shows we usually do, I do tons of comic shows, um, Orlando, San Antonio, Dallas, all these different cities, Salt Lake City, none of that's happening. Uh, Do big shows, sports shows, Chicago, the National, uh, which was supposed to be in Atlantic City this year, you know, all canceled. It's very strange strange so i imagine you're pretty good buddies with the mail guy right yeah well the the (laughs) fedex guy and i we know each other pretty well we're pals (laughs) how much shit do you get every day like do you just get piles of stuff that you're like what 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 the fuck was anybody thinking sending me this to like even take a look at it's funny in the office i'd say yeah because we we take so much stuff in the office and a lot of times i was just there monday and tuesday and i look and i'm like why is somebody submitting this but you know what people like to have either in a holder or they like to have it certified and there's so much stuff that if we run an aggressive special let's say we run a special where we we take half off our letter price we'll get people submitting all kinds of weird stuff stuff that no one would ever submit we get all kinds of weird stuff we get uh nazi generals we get world leaders we get japanese uh presidents uh from the past i mean it's like all weird stuff you know mayors from small towns in the 30s and people emailing our customer service and asking if they could have their grandfather's autograph certified so that is unreal. Yeah. Every time I think about what you do, and, and this actually happened before you came on the podcast. I was telling a buddy of mine uh, that you were coming on the podcast, and he was like, dude, you have to ask him about, like, and I'm like, no, man, I'm not asking him about your, like, random thing that you acquired once upon a time. And, like, <laughs> it, it made me kind of chuckle, though, because I imagine you get that, like, everywhere. All the time. Yeah, it's all the time. You know what? This The stories. People want to be able to tell you a story. So it, let's say I go to Little Rock and uh, a couple come in to an onsite and they say, hey, can we talk to Steve? And they'll have this, this piece that they've had forever. And a lot of times I'll tell you what, people overinflate the value because they want it to be worth more. Most of the time it's real. There's those times where the stuff is fake or, you know, it's not good. You know, the stories about Babe Ruth giving a baseball to my grandfather or my dad sitting in the dugout with Mickey Mantle and Mickey had the whole team sign it. That stuff's usually bad. That's almost in every case I've seen literally 
all bad or clubhouse or, you know, remember, uh, you know, you'd be a kid and be at the ballpark. I remember I grew up in Chicago, go to White Sox Park, Comiskey Park. They, at the concession stand, you could buy like a facsimile baseball of that team. So it's the 82 White Sox. You can go buy a facsimile baseball. We get those. And I've, you know, in the 18, 19 years I've done this, I've probably seen 300 of those submitted, maybe 400 in that ballpark. And people pay good money. You have to minimally 100 $150 to submit those for authentication. That's and crazy. I'm always like, man, I feel for you. And years ago when I was at uh, PSA 2002 range, we used to have to take the items in ourselves before we had customer service. And I remember this couple didn't have much money I could tell. And they said they found it in their garage and it was a pre-print ball. And I said, do me a favor, just take that back. Don't spend your hard-earned money on that. It's, you know, it's not real. But sometimes people fight you on it. Those are the best ones where people actually fight you and say, no, that's real. Okay, sure. <laughs> What's the most aggressive someone's gotten with you when you've given them bad news? Uh, years ago, I had a guy jump over a table at us in San Francisco. Um, that's happened. Uh, had people get up in our faces. Uh, tell you know, I, I think that the common ones we get, you know, we're going to sue you. For what? Because you said my item was bad. Well, it's an opinion. So go to the next guy, maybe another company, and they'll tell you it's real. So, I mean, stuff like that happens all the time. I'd say that's pretty common. Um, but there are aggressive people. There's people that have pushed our customer service reps to get in their face. They don't like the judgment. They throw the stuff down at you. Um, people are like that, you know, because I, I, the one thing I, I, I've seen throughout all these years is that everybody wants that thing to be real. Like, so let's say you bought behind you if that Jordan poster was signed. And I'm like, well, what would you pay for that? Well, I paid uh, $15 for it. Uh, you know, I got some bad news for you. That's bad. No, it's not. You don't know what you're talking about. I bought that piece and I know right where it came from. Or they'll make up a story saying they got it signed. But by the time you start talking to them, it's from they got it signed to their brother got it signed to I bought it on eBay for $10. So right. it's like all those different breakdowns. It's been very interesting to see that through the years, though, how people will make up stories or they'll lie to kind of make their piece better. So that happens quite frequently. You mentioned uh, your opinion on things. How did you get to the point where you wanted to like get into this and, and kind of make that judgment call? I think that I was fascinated by it. I've been around autographs my whole life, eight years old, started getting autographs at the ballpark, but about 98, 99, in the 90s, it was the wild, wild west of autographs. There, you know, People were selling good stuff, bad stuff. Nobody knew what was going on. By about 99, people got sick of it. They had the helper sale, the very helper, the former part owner of the Yankees, a small part of it, sold his, sold his massive collection. And at that time, you know, it was kind of like, we need to start something. PSA card grading had started about 91 or so. So they started an autograph authentication division in 99. And then others followed suit. Uh, Global had followed a few years later or whatever. But um, I saw that in 99. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool idea. I got to know Jim Spence. I got to know the guys at PSA. And before I knew it, in 2001, they were talking to me about a job. 2002, they wanted to hire me. So it's kind of just a weird profession. People ask me every single day, I'll get a text message, I'll get emails, I get uh, people on Twitter. How do you get into this business? Um, live, eat, breathe. You know, that's what you have to do to be in the business. And I think a lot of people just assume they could come in and do it. There's great experts of certain niche stuff. I've seen it all through the years, but finding people that are like well-rounded is really tough to do. I mean, I honestly, like, I don't know Wander Franco's autograph that well. It's right here. Okay. I just don't, but 
I could send it to my guys and they could help me out with that. And I could certify it for somebody because I've got some stuff here to certify. But, you know, I say to the guys, what do you think of these Wander Francos? Take a look at it. It's live ink. I could see that. They'll take a look at the scans. They compare it and do the work on it because you can't know everything, right? Right. It's impossible. So I mean, there's certainly a, a margin <clears throat> for error without a doubt. And, uh, you know, it, like it's fascinating to me that you can like, I guess, compare it to real stuff. You can look at, I guess, the the signatures and, and the different, you know, strokes, I guess, that people use when they sign things and, and you know, give whatever your, your opinion is on that. Like, that's so fascinating to me. Well, uh, okay, so I'll tell you a few weeks ago, uh, it's about two and a half weeks ago, I was, I was in Florida, and I see this news flash about this guy, this forger in Detroit. Did you hear about him? No. Okay, so if you get a chance to read about it, he was up in uh, maybe near Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, he had a big barn. He was manufacturing stuff out of. I've known about the guy forever. He's been in the business forever, producing high-end stuff. And I always said to people, this guy's an artist. You know, like his work is not, uh, it's not what I would expect to see out of an average forger. He's trying to perfect stuff too much. So um, I told the feds about him years ago, 12, 13 years ago. I told the feds about him recently, told them about him recently. It didn't matter like uh, repeatedly, you know, <laughs> they, they had bigger fish to fry. What the guy had done though, is he had, um, instead of doing just sports memorabilia, he had jumped into the art realm. So if you get a chance to read the story, it's fascinating. And I think that's why the feds got involved in it. And, and ultimately they caught him. They ended up busting him in, you can't really, you know, the paint's an issue. Finding paint pre-World War II stuff is tough. And he was forging paintings from, you know, 1905 or 1890 or 1880 and saying, I have these new finds. He was an artist himself. And it turns out this guy had been running this racket for many years. So um, I, and, and the, what I want to get to on this is like, let's say his Babe Ruth autograph, which was, by the way, really good. But he couldn't duplicate Babe Ruth's um, uh, pressure and sizing and how he held the pen and how hard he pressed. And no one could really do that. The guys are trying to do Mickey Mantle. They can't do that. They can't sign with his authority and speed. And, you know, it's not – have you ever tried signing a sweet spot of a baseball? It's not an easy thing. It's not. We all tried Mantle. it as kids, right? Like we, uh, yeah. we had our baseballs in the backyard and tried to – I've done that. it a bunch because people ask me in person, they'll come to shows or they'll bring a baseball or a, an appearance I'll do and, and I'll sign it. But what you have to do is you, when you sign it, you almost have to turn it when you're signing it to make it perfect. That's what I noticed. At least I don't know how guys do it. I remember when I was a kid getting baseball signed. You hand it to him. The guy's walking like 10 miles an hour signing it and it looks fine. I'm like, how'd you do that? And like, I'm sitting here, I have to put it on my knee and like balancing in it and turning it. But Mickey Mantle made it look easy. DiMaggio, those guys did it so many times. People can't duplicate that. They can make it look close. So an artist like this Hankel guy in Detroit or Michigan, he can make it look close, but he can't duplicate that signature. He can't figure out if Babe Ruth, did he tell the pen just that much? Uh, how much pressure did he actually apply when he signed? And at what letters did he apply the pressure at? You could look at a ball he signed and see that sort of, but then you have to duplicate that perfectly and it's almost impossible. So over the years, my my signature has changed. Like it changes almost every time I sign it. Like it's, it's a different stroke. Is that sure. something that comes into play? Do guys, do their <laughs> signatures change like over the years or even like within short periods of time? Yeah, they do. The, the, the autographs change through the years. Uh, you take just about any player. Mike Trout, if you go look at his autograph in the minor leagues to now, it's evolved so much. Uh, Bryce Harper is another example. His autograph has changed and evolved. Tom Brady has gone full circle to signing uh, his rookie cards and stuff for the companies when they first came out to his autograph now, which are like night and day difference. You'd look at the two and be like, where, where are they at? But 
if you follow that pattern and if you're able to track his autograph through the years, you could, you could tell, you could see that evolution. But if, if it's somebody looking at it for the first time, they look at his rookie year autograph and then his autograph today and say, those are two different things, but they're not. That's why you have to keep an exemplar database. Now, I, I mean, I don't keep an exemplar database of Alan Trammell's and Biff Porcaroba, but um, you know, the guys that count and the stuff we see repeatedly, I'm always saving stuff. So it's very important. I think what's interesting to me about the sports card hobby and the autograph, you know, memorabilia, all of that kind of grouped into one, it kind of seems like throughout this time, that passion that people maybe once had for it that lost it somewhere along the way, they've kind of come back around during this time where everybody's at home. And with that has come just drastic skyrocketing values in a lot of this stuff. So $1.8 million for a modern day card, 2003, 2004, LeBron James upper deck card. That's unprecedented stuff. And that's what we're seeing. Mike Trout card selling $4 million, 300,000. That stuff is happening every day. And I don't know if it's people more time at home, people refocused, people investing where they wouldn't otherwise, let's say the stock market, um, pulling money out of mutual funds, but people are finding a way to invest in this stuff now heavily. I've been seeing it. You see all these trends for the years, um, game use stuff, autographs, um, the cards, it's nonstop. You know, we saw it, a, a great example of the whole COVID-19 lockdown was Michael Jordan. The guy, you know, the, the, the man, the myth, the legend. Jordan um, was already popular. He was already a brand name. He was already an icon. And then uh, they ran the last dance on ESPN, chronicling his years with the Bulls. And then next thing you know, Jordan stuff is hotter than it's ever been. And I've, I, I got to think just a few times I've seen runs like that. Michael Jackson was one of them when he died. Uh, Kobe Bryant went on a short run after he passed away. Um, but Jordan stuff just went insane. And I'm seeing it cool down a little bit. I'm seeing stuff come back down to earth. People are going crazy for anything they can get their hands on Jordan. We saw record prices on cards, uh, jerseys. I think a letter of his sold in um, iconic auctions for $24,000, So stuff like that is like just hotcakes, you know, because of what happened on TV. Plus there's no sports. Yeah, so it's, it's uh... crazy. You think that's a bubble? You think that's something that's going to burst? Or do you think it, it maybe comes back down, but it's still going to be elevated from where it was pre-COVID. I do, but I think people are going to regret overpaying on a lot of stuff. You know, when when I saw Jordan jerseys, just an average upper deck jersey selling for 6000 I think people are going to regret paying that kind of money because it's not worth it. You know, I mean, just an average jersey. Not talking about like the swing man or the nice throwbacks they do. Just an average uh, Bulls upper deck jersey, $6,000. Okay, so you paid... $3,500 too much. I don't even know when he's dead, if that's worth that much. So it, you're paying a lot, but you got caught up in the euphoria of it. And that's what a lot of people did. So this is a seller's market is what you're saying. I think it is. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, it's always a buyer's market. If you know what you're doing, don't overpay and use common sense, which about 99% of people don't. So you mentioned you got started collect uh, or getting autographs at, at ballparks. Do you still collect? Like, how has your personal interest in the hobby changed throughout the years? Uh, I still do collect a little bit. I don't do much in the sports stuff anymore. I've gotten rid of so much of it. I, I used to love getting baseball card signed in football and basketball. I used to do all that and met Jordan many times. And then uh, I think as a collector, and if you're, you're into it so much like I was back in the 80s and 90s, you evolve into music, celebrities, politicians, you know, anything to get your hands on. And then I think what makes collecting more fun, and I think the, for me at least, the best part of collecting is being a focused collector. 
Um, Star Wars is where I've built one of the biggest collections in the world of autographs of that. And same with Indiana Jones and stuff I focus on. I think that's what I have enjoyed doing. Not being this broad-based collector and saying, I'm going to get everything. I'm going to get that card, this. I want this set. No, I just I just focus. But like, you know, I have the first three years of Star Wars top signed. Uh, 77, 80, 83, you know, they're pretty much all complete. And I work on stuff like that. I enjoy that stuff and photographs and posters and action figures. If it's Star Wars signed, I've got it. Um, but it's a good thing to do for me, at least because it, it it keeps my focus. If I was so broad based and collected too much, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd have to get rid of all of it because it would just, it's not enough. So if you focus in one area, I think you could excel at it and enjoy it. And that's kind of at 49, I turned 50 in a few weeks. That's what I've taken away from collecting all these years is just uh, be a focused collector. I think it's a lot of fun. You're not going to have everything, right? You're not going to be able to collect everything. You're, you're not, it's not happening. You want to do 500 home run club, do single balls of them. You want to do 500 home, you know, uh, 500 home run bats or do a multi bat or whatever, but focus collecting is a good way to enjoy it and find great pieces and then be able to afford them too. Because if you're all over the board, you're going to be dumping money and other stuff that might be a waste. So your individual star Wars collection, does that just apply to the old star Wars or does that include like the newer stuff too? That's a, that's, that's good. I, I spent a lot of money um, when the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, those movies came out and I regret it. I've, I've actually dumped most of that stuff off and gotten rid of it. Um, the original trilogy. And I like some of the new stuff, you know, some of the new films, a couple of them, I'll collect some of the stuff. I've kind of curtailed that though, because after the last two movies were so bad, they made, I was just like, ah, I, I, I think I got to just take a pass on this. And they weren't that good though. My, my youngest daughter says the greatest thing ever. I don't agree with her, but I do like the standalone stuff they've done. The Mandalorian's wonderful. So I'm into that stuff and I like it and I still get some of the card sign and a photo here and there, but I'm more focused on just keep building the original stuff that I have and still getting what remaining people I could get. And listen, I've done it different than anybody. I've gone to Europe probably 10 times to go do this overseas and knock on people's doors and do signings. I've gone to Australia. I've done, I've done it in New Zealand. I've done it in Canada. I've done it all over America. I've probably done 250 signings um, with just people you've never heard of, just random Star Wars people. So I'm really into it. And I'm kind of uh, also at the point where I'm kind of getting maxed on it too, where I just need to take a break from it. So I'm kind of tapping the brakes on it, to be honest with you right now. Well, after that last Star Wars movie was such shit, it's probably easy to do. Or at least I thought it was. I left the theater like what the hell did they do to this entire franchise? Yeah, it was bad. It, that was bad. And the one before that was was even worse when Princess Leia flies through outer space. That was, I, I remember I was with my daughter, my uh, oldest daughter. I just looked at her. We both looked at each other. One of those moments where we're like, really? And then I was lost after that. And I like Star Wars. And there were some scenes in the movies that were cool, but come on, man, they blew it in the first one they made where they could have brought the original people together, you know, Luke and Han and Leia and Chewbacca. They could have had them all together one last time. I thought they blew that big time. Um, I think they followed too many themes. J.J. Abrams came back in the last one and tried to squeeze everything they could. You know, when they give Chewbacca a medal at the end, I was like, nah, this is this is stupid. Please don't do this ever again. Like, that just got me. I was like, that's just, no. I can't handle that. It just was too much for me, you know? And I, I think that um, I go back to the standalones they made, the stuff that Disney's doing on their own platform, I think is very good. And I do like it and I do enjoy it. I didn't get into Star Wars until I was a teenager and I was born in 81. So as I kind of got into the original trilogy is when they started releasing that second group of prequels. And I, it was just like, from that point on, it just like, I was super geeked into it. And then I came way back 
And then the the last series that came out was just kind of like a middle of the road type thing for me until the very end. And then yuck. I will say this much. And this was a cool experience. The last film that came out in December, I was a guest of Daisy Ridley who played Ray. So I got to go to the premiere and it was really cool. I mean, and I've always wanted to go to a big LA premiere like this. And I've been to a couple, but this was like unbelievably huge uh, Hollywood Boulevard blocked off and, and, and they had an after party for regular people. And I was in there and they're like, no, 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 no. Um, you're going to go into the other party. And that's where ho- the whole cast was. So I'm standing next to Harrison Ford and there's JJ Abrams and here's Billy D Williams and here's uh, Daisy Ridley and here's driver. And they were all in there. John Boega, all of them were in there together. So I was, and, and, and uh, Pedro Pascal, who's the Mandalorian was there and it was really cool. I had a great time. It was really neat to be part of that though. And John Williams was there and Frank Marshall and, and his wife, Kathleen Kennedy, and they were all there talking and hanging out and uh, it was really cool. That was a great experience. The movie wasn't that great. Um, you know, but I do think that Adam Driver was great in it. I thought Daisy Ridley was great in it. I just didn't think it was a great movie. So, you know, I guess we move on to the uh, to the next installment they're doing and the next stuff, and it'll be fun to see it. I'm just not as a collector. I think the original trilogy stuff to me is always going to be what I want to collect and do. So that's where I'm staying. That's the focus, and I, and I do love weird stuff, man. I collect like Indiana Jones, obviously I mentioned, but I'll collect like the Blues Brothers. I've got this insane Blues Brothers collection where I've got extras and people writing lines on photos and the band members and all this stuff. So I enjoy stuff like that still. I still have a passion for that stuff and the great movies like Big Lebowski or, uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan or, you know, those type of shows, Band of Brothers, uh, The Wire. I'm into all that type of stuff. So I collect stuff from that and I do enjoy it. Do it's you all s- worthless, but I like yeah. it. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's what collecting is really about, right? It's 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 uh, what it means to you. And, and for me, exactly. you know, it's like, I know the the 80s and 90s stuff is complete junk, but that's when I grew up and I, I still appreciate it because every time I look at it, like I have the the nostalgic feeling of, you know, what that was like to save every dime you had to go to the, the store and buy as many packs as you could possibly get. You know what I mean? Well, how many how many 87 tops John Crook rookies do you have? <laughs> I'm sure there are some John Crook rookies in a box somewhere. I do... Uh, like the 87 Bo Jackson card, the future stars, Bo Jackson yeah. card. Like that yeah. was one of my favorites as a kid. And, um, I, I don't know how many of those I have, but I, they're probably worth like a buck or two now. And I, I still, yeah, I still much. love them. I mean, you know, cause it was just, that was like one of my favorite cards growing up. So I think there's only three good cards that came out of like that mid to late eighties or late eighties run Griffey, obviously upper deck, uh, Sammy Sosa leaf, Frank Thomas leaf. Um, maybe the, uh, I think a Dale Murphy uh, air card upper deck, but there wasn't much. I mean, 85, you know, we all thought Gooden was going to be so great. Yeah. And 84 was strawberry and 83 was Boggs and Sandberg. And none of that stuff is worth anything. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. Have you seen the project 2020 stuff? Speaking of Gooden and Griffey and some of those names. I've seen a little bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a little bit of the, it out there. The values on some of those cards are unbelievable. But why is that? I'm not sure. It's it's a it's a very odd thing. Like I just looked into it in the last couple of weeks, and I just ha- kind of happened to stumble on it, and then I went to eBay to see what the values look like, and there are there was like a Ricky Henderson card selling for I mean on average like six or seven hundred dollars. And that doesn't make a lot of sense for Ricky Henderson. So it's, yeah, it's so wild to me. I, I don't know. I haven't maybe gotten myself educated enough to understand why the values are so high on those, but it seems to be a pretty limited, big is phenomenon. Is it so they make them a little more limited to the collector, so they're worth more money? Is it looks it? so. My perception of it is Topps releases they so it's twenty different rookie cards that they 
decided to have 20 different artists basically do their take of and they release them i think two at a time and you and it's like a limited like two-day run where you can buy them directly from tops and then that's it and they move on to the next group okay so there are print runs that are like three thousand cards and there are print runs that are like 12 and 15,000. So that probably plays a role in which ones are worth something. Probably a combination of what artist does, you know, what guy on what print run probably plays into it. But it's pretty interesting that, the, I mean, the values have been all over the place and it looks like they're going up and down and it's pretty wild. Tops did, then they do like living something. I don't even know what they did. I just don't, I'm, well, my friend Pat Neshek played for the Phillies. He collects all that stuff and he was trying to buy all of his cards uh, the one year. I don't even know what they were, but he was like desperate to buy all. He was buying them all from tops, from collectors. He was going crazy for them. He wanted to own all of them. I'm like, you're fine, dude. He's like, it's a limited run of 5,000 or 10,000. So I guess it's worth more to collectors. I, I love baseball cards at one time in my life. I remember um years ago um you know my dad coming home from a christmas party and goes well hey my uh, my friend gave me these cards and there's a stack of cards and on the top was like a 57 tops mickey mantle and i thought it was the greatest thing ever graded like a four when grading started you know but it was just neat to have that stuff i used to be into it so much it's so hard now because there's so much different com- so many different companies same with football and basketball and you know if it's not star wars i usually don't pay attention to it too much yeah yeah i hear you uh, do you you mentioned going to that Star Wars party? Have you reached a point where you're kind of numb to doing cool shit like that, or like, are there still scenarios where you kind of get geeked a little bit to like, I can't believe I'm in this scenario right now? I think that one was it. I yeah. mean, I, you know what? I don't know if I could top it. And to tell you the truth, where um, when you're in a situation like that, if you walk up to uh, Harrison Ford, he's going to say hi to you. He's not going to brush you off or whatever. If you go up to John Williams, um, the great composer, and start talking to him, you can have a conversation with him. Where, you know, at different events, different places, those people are more standoffish. They're being rushed along. Harrison Ford was in that party for three hours, just standing there talking to people, you know, talking to Frank Marshall, talking to people he knew. I went up to him with uh, Billy D. Williams, who has a son, Corey D. Williams, who was an extra in Return of the Jedi. You probably didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so Corey and Billy and I and, and their agent went up and started talking to Ford and had a conversation with him. He was fine. And it's just, I don't know if I could top that, you know, just for in terms of coolness. And I've met Ford probably 50, 60 times in my life where most of the time he's rushed, wants to get out of the situation, but he's actually a pretty cordial guy. He's a, he's a nice dude. He's not... He's not a jerk. I mean, if you treat him nice, he'll usually treat you nice. And um, this was one of the cooler situations I've had with him, just to say hi to him, talk to him for a second. Um, I mentioned being from Chicago. He goes, well, you're from a good place. That's where I'm from. So, which I knew he'd say that. So, <laughs> What's <clears throat> the like weirdest, whether it's a party or just event that you've gone to that you thought, like, how did I end up here? That might be one of them. I did, I, you know, the, the one that was kind of weird was um, the Simpsons premiere in LA, I think it was 2007. And it was in Westwood and they set up instead of a red carpet, it was a yellow carpet. And a friend of mine ran for years, he ran the security firm that did all the premieres in LA. And he used to say to me, and he used to ask me to have him look at autographs from online, you know, or send me links. And he, he said, anytime you want to go to a premiere, let me know. I'm like, yeah, right. So I'm like, well, uh, how about the Simpsons premiere? He goes, no problem. Show up at this time and come look for me. I find him. He takes me and puts me at the entrance of the theater on the carpet. I'm like, am I supposed to be here? He goes, yeah, you're fine. And it was just a weird situation. Go to the after party. 
And this was the only uncomfortable part of it. Dan Castellanet is there. The whole cast is there. And he's the voice of Homer. And at these after parties, they have weird stuff. And there you could make donuts and do all this weird stuff, you know, Simpsons related. But they had the whole family, I remember, in kind of like lifelike form sitting on a couch. And then you sit next to them and they take a photo. It's very nice. So just so happens the second I went up to do it, Dan Castellanet is right there. And I go, hey, Dan, you mind hopping in the photo with me? And he just looks at me for probably 15 seconds without saying a word where he was just caught off guard. And I said, you know, I don't got anybody with me. My kids would love to see the, the real voice of Homer Simpson sitting here. He reluctantly did it. So he sits with me in the photo, you know, with the whole Simpsons family. They print the photo, they give it to you. And he's standing there. I said, hey, do you mind signing that? And he just turned and walked away. Oh. <laughs> but on, a, on another related note, a few years ago, maybe three years ago now, I went to a table read, which is also one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life where you're sitting in a round room and they're sitting at a big table and they do the whole read for, the, for whatever episode it was. They do the whole thing. And you hear all the voices. They don't do it as their normal voices. They're doing it as their their character voices. So afterwards it kind of breaks apart and everybody stands around, they talk, they hand out scripts, you can get them signed. And uh, I go up to Dan Castellaneta and he goes, Hey, he goes, uh, I really like you on the show. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're on Pawn Stars. And I'm like, did my friends put you up to that? <laughs> he goes, no, 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 no. He's like, I've got so much downtime. That's my favorite show. I watch it all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, you're serious. He goes, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, can I get a photo with you? He's like, I can't do it in here. <laughs> That's amazing. I, but it was I, a cool story. That was it was it was it was weird, you know. But he was to to. I think he was. It was really strange because they all just sit around and wait for everybody to come up to him, and he was just sitting there looking at me, and he knew who I was. And I always find that very strange because if you saw Dan Castellaneta, you probably wouldn't even recognize him. Right. You have no idea who he was. Right. In passing, yeah, probably not. But if you heard his voice, you'd be like, oh. Homer Simpson. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it's it's funny. You you kind of like embrace the whole the guy from Pawn Stars moniker. Yeah, I do. I came up with that. It's kind of ridiculous. And I've had a friend recently who's in marketing PR told me to get rid of it, drop it. And I'm like, I can't. I like it. It's fun. You know, even the guys when I'm there filming, they're like, oh, hey, it's the guy from Pawn Stars, you know, and Rick does it. Chumley does it, especially Chumley. He rides me pretty hard on it. So I think it's funny. I'm going to let it stick. It's better than whatever I had before. So I'll take it. <laughs> and you know what? I think it's I'll say this much. Um, I think it's a positive for our business and for the hobby to have um, reputable people on shows like that. Not like the guy that I replaced who passed away just recently. His name was Drew Max. Drew was not considered reputable. Uh, his certification wasn't considered reputable. Um, I think that makes a big difference for our business and gives credibility to the companies I work for. People see that. And I, I mean, man, I get recognized all over the place, just in really strange places, but not all the time. I could go two, three months without anybody saying a word to me, but then I'll go two weeks where I just get constantly recognized at places or airports or on an airplane or sitting in a bar having dinner or even walking down the street in England where I had this family chase after me. <laughs> they didn't speak English, but they knew who I was. It's amazing. Yeah, it and, and I imagine they all say you're the guy from Pawn Stars and not Steve, right? Yeah, they don't know. It's it, I'd say one out of every 50 knows my name. That's it. And when they do, I'm like, you're a creep. <laughs> 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 I don't. I'm very appreciative of it. But, but it's weird when they actually know your name, but they're usually like, hey, aren't you the guy from Pawn Stars? That's why I started it because uh, I remember I went to a Home Depot right after I'd started my episode, started airing like 2013. And, and, and the guy standing there gives, gives me the card and goes, hey, aren't you the guy from Pawn Stars? 
I'm like, oh, that, that's kind of catchy. I like that. I think I'm going to use that. And then I think more it's perfect. So I'm just going to use it. It's ridiculous. It's horrible. And I'll probably be ridiculed my entire life for it. But you know what? I'll enjoy the cup of coffee while it's hot. And then when it's cold, you know what? We look back and say we had a great time. How did you get connected with them? Was that uh, just something through, were you with Beckett at the time or, or how did that no, all I was work? With, I was with PSA okay. actually in, in 2009, uh, to make a long story short, they started filming the show. They wanted to do the pilot. They contacted PSA and said, hey, we've got this idea. What do you think? PSA took a pass on it. Uh, management said, no, we don't want to do that. We got something else going on. Well, it, it's really weird. I tell this people the story because it's so strange. Through 09 through like 012, we would occasionally get a phone call from someone at Golden Silver Pond saying, hey, we want uh, PSA on the show, but you have to pay us a quarter million. It started off like a half million dollars a year. It was crazy. I mean, we're not going to do that. Then it was a quarter million. Then it was like, hey, you got to pay us 20000 an episode. Like they'd call the time trying to rake us down for money. I, have, I think I know the guy who was doing it. But we never gave into it. In 2013, early 2013, my boss at the time goes, hey, do me a favor. Call us. Here's a phone call. I said, what is he? He goes, just call it. And it was the casting producer for Pawn Stars who had been calling him to get somebody on the show. And that's how it all came together. And uh, I think in 2013, I started filming. And uh, since then, I've done about 125 episodes that have aired and maybe another 20 or 30 that haven't. They just never aired or whatever. Um, but I actually had to go back and I took some time during the Corona time to figure out what episodes I'm on because I don't know because they quit keeping track after my first year on IMDb. So I went in and filled in all the blanks. So yeah, I had to do it myself. But at the same time, I got to go back and relive a lot of that and say, oh, I remember that. I remember that day. Most of it, though, I don't remember. Like people say, hey, remember that time you guys did that? And I'm like, no, I have no idea because it just all blends together. They run a pretty basic format when I go and film. So it's really easy to do. It's not too many variables. When we're on the road, it's a little different, but um, I, I, I think I, I caught a great break being able to do it and I enjoy it. And uh, I'll be there this week, uh, later this week. I think I'll be doing some filming. So um, they're back for season 17. So, and it's one of the only shows that's filming right now because most are still in lockdown. So, um, but they take all safety protocols and they've already told me if I'm filming, here's what you have to do and here's what we need. And it's, it sounds like it's all, you know, done very safe, but I, I feel very honored to be doing it. And obviously I hope to keep doing it and I'd love to do another show off it. I just don't know if, I don't know a whole show could support autographs or what I do. I don't know. I've had more people tell me in my life, just fans or people said you should have a show, but then when you bring it up to like producer types, they're like, eh, not sure about that. But then I'm the most used expert on the show now over the last three or four years. So there's a reason they keep having me back. They like the autograph stuff. And it's, it's, some of it's pretty cool, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. When, when you're filming there, like how long are you hanging out there? Like, is it, uh, and, and like, how does that whole process work? Cause like, I, I always just imagine as I'm watching the show and, and I know this isn't the way it works, but I always just imagine like Steve's hanging out in the back, just like feet kicked up and they're like, all right, Steve, we're ready. We've got something for you. And it like, but how does all that work as far as when you're there filming? I have an idea. I have an idea when I'm going to film, they'll give me a block of time just to know when to be available. Actually, I have a bunch of workout in Vegas this week, so it kind of works out well. If they need me, I'll be there. Um, A lot of stuff I can't talk about because it's contractual, but, you know, um, there are are different takes done. And, you know, a lot of times you get a seller that gets really nervous and it takes them 
that might take them uh, an hour to film their scene or two hours just because they can't get through it. Um, you've got three cameras on you at all times, you know, your microphone, um, you know, people extras in there, they call them extras or just people walking around the shop. Then you have people that are behind the cameras. So it's a lot of people focused on you and I can understand where people get nervous at it. I never thought of it that way. I just think of it cause I, I went to, went to school for radio. I worked in radio and it's just nothing different to me than just talking to a microphone. So I have to do a lot of stuff where I have to do it alone too, without anybody, just camera guys or whatever, because you get different angles and stuff like that. So I'm used to it, but it, the process does take a little while to do and put it all together. Um, but I feel they've got it down so, so well. It's really done format wise where it's just perfect. And I think that, um, you know, just me being more comfortable day after day filming has made a big difference. You know, there is stuff we do. We went to England last year, which was probably the coolest thing I got to do. And uh, we filmed over there. I only filmed for two or three days, but they filmed for two weeks or so doing all a bunch of different stuff. But we did a bunch of Star Wars stuff there. And I pretty much led the whole thing. It was pretty much the focus was me taking Rick around instead of Rick being the focus. So I would guide Rick and I was talking to Rick and I'm like, let's go this way. Let's look at this. And for me, at least that was kind of like, I think the biggest thrill I've ever had doing this. And I don't, I, that whole day is kind of a blur to me. The the one day we filmed Saturday was especially a blur, but is really one of the most memorable times I had. And I'm, like I said, I'm very grateful for it and have the chance to do that. That episode that aired, we, um, we did some great stuff on that show. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it aired right before Christmas last year. And uh, we did a Han Solo blaster. We did a original Star Wars uh, poster. We did uh, Carrie Fisher's necklace from Star Wars, uh, Luke Skywalker lightsaber and uh, Han Solo's medal the Yavin metal. So which Chewbacca got in the last movie. That's amazing. What was your favorite part about being over there? Was it culture shock or, or is it somewhere that you feel like you, you could hang out for a while? There I could hang out. I've been going there since uh, 91. So I kind of fit in just fine. Uh, I have so many friends there. Um, the filming part was different. And when you film it out, we filmed at Elstree Studios. They filmed so many famous movies there, including the first two Star Wars films, Indiana Jones. They've done so much stuff there at Elstree. And to, to actually film right there where they filmed Star Wars was pretty cool. And I, I like, I, I don't know if I can ever top it. You ask, what can you top? Well, in terms of coolness, at least for me, that was it. And I was like, the man that day. Rick wasn't. Rick was just a bystander. It, he had to follow my lead on everything. So I had to guide everything. You know, uh, we filmed in the car, which I've never done before, which I thought was kind of cool. You know, we had two camera guys facing you and a sound guy in the front seat and then the driver of the van and then Rick and I just sitting in the back. And I've never done stuff like that. I was, oh, it was awesome. I got a, such a kick out of it and such a high. And then we also filmed with the Han Solo blaster, which I thought was absolutely amazing. And, you know, to hold this relic in your hands, um, because what happens just to make a long story short is film like Star Wars, Empire, Raiders, um, they need weapons, but they can't have plastic ones. You know, your hero stuff can't be plastic. So they use actual real weapons for that stuff. So, you know, uh, Indiana Jones guns, they're real guns. They just don't fire. Um, if you remember Indiana, Indiana Jones movie, Marion uh, gets in the gets in that plane and she uh, has a machine gun and she's firing on on the Nazis. And the guy goes, "Oh, I got that." Just sitting over here in the corner, he just pulls it out, and there it is. They had that for that. Just neat stuff like that. It's it's really cool to be part of that. We got to to see some really neat stuff that day. The filming takes a long time when you're on location, but uh, at the end of the day, when I saw the episode, it was very gratifying to be part of it. What's the coolest thing that somebody's ever brought in on the show, at least, that you were like, that just kind of wowed you? 
Well, the Beatles contract, I think, is still and the Star Wars stuff we did that day. We filmed the Star Wars stuff was pretty amazing, and and actually, the stuff we didn't film was you know uh, Han Solo, uh, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, their contracts for Star Wars and Empire. I thought that stuff was neat, but we did a Beatles original contract. Their original original contract um, was all handwritten. Brian Epstein, their manager, said, "Listen, if we get a con- if I get you an album deal in a year, we'll rip this up and make a real contract." Okay. They ripped it up and made a real contract. Three of the Beatles' uh, parents had to co-sign for them on the contract. Guy brought that in to sell it on the show. He wanted crazy money. I think Rick offered him two or three hundred thousand. Didn't work out, but still, when I look at back at all the cool stuff we've done, that's it. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a great piece. Yeah, that, and I've been lucky to see some really neat stuff, but that ranks up there. We we actually had a guy come in with um, and this one airs all the time. It was a postcard collection that his uh, I think his mother had gotten from her brother who worked in LA on movie sets in the forties and fifties. And the stuff he had in there was phenomenal. He had no idea what he had on his hands. No idea. He knew about 10 names and we were literally filming. I'm like, do you know who this is? He's like, no, I'm like, that's Marlon Brando. There's Frank Sinatra. There's Humphrey Bogart. There's Babe Ruth. Like he had no clue. It was amazing to go through it. They ended up buying it. I think they paid 6,000, 7,000 more than what he wanted. So it worked out really well for him. That was really neat. That's so cool. Yeah. So I know you're a White Sox fan. Are you excited for baseball to start up or what do you think? I wasn't. I wasn't for a while because I was getting frustrated. I'm like, come on, guys, figure yeah. this out, get this going. But I mean, in a 60-game uh, schedule, I, I don't know why they, they wouldn't be considered one of the better teams with the pitching they have and especially the hitting they have. They're, they're going to murder the baseball. And the Sox, traditionally, as a Sox fan, they never hit the ball until like June. So I'm really excited to see this. Usually – April and May is a really bad time for that franchise because they can't hit the ball. And now it's warm weather in Chicago. The ball flies out of that ballpark. Um, they've got Gio Gonzalez and, and Dallas Keiko at the top of the rotation. They've got uh, Dylan Cease, Dean Dunning. They have all these young arms. I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be really hard to beat, especially when the rosters open at 30, you know, and you could carry 17, 18 pitchers. I think the Sox are going to be really, really hard. And, and I think baseball's changing this year. It has to, obviously, but like, look at how teams are going to be. They're going to be all different. You know, you're going to have different bullpens. Your starters could go four innings and you could hand it over and have eight or nine guys to throw in the bullpen. So, I think it's going to be different, interesting. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I think the Sox are going to be tough to beat. I, I don't like any other team except them. So, and especially I hate the Cubs. So. You have to, yeah. I mean, the, the young talent there with Moncada and Jimenez and, and obviously Luis Robert, like it's, it's such a, a group of guys that have so much potential. I mean, not just this year, but Tim Anderson won the batting Tim, title. Yeah, batting year. title. I mean, yeah, he won the batting title. I mean, uh, Nomar Mazar is in right field. Um, Nick Madrill, I, I I think they just don't want to elevate him to second, but he should be starting at second. Uh, Abreu is a slugger at first base. Um, Yasmani Grandal is their catcher. He's yeah. one of the top five hitters in baseball. So I, I don't know where they're going to go wrong. I, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know where they'll finish, but I would imagine it should be at the top. If not, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> Why? Why'd you go White Sox over Cubs? Okay, so that story is really easy, and it's funny. Okay. Uh, maybe circa 77, 78, I want to say it's right in that range. Um, I know my sister wasn't born, so it had to be one of those years. Dave Kingman was the big player for the Cubs. My mom and dad, I think, pulled us out of school. We went to a Cub game, rained out. But, you know, we're still there. You wait forever. Game's called. My dad said, hey, what do you say we just go down and wait for the players to come out? Because they'd come right out the back, and they had a little parking lot. They'd all park in and drive out. So I said, okay, cool. First player out was Dave Kingman. Just my brother and me, mind you, scorecards, pencils probably. 
Dave Kingman stops his car. It's not raining out. He stopped and he flipped us off oh. and he kept driving. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So from that day on, I was a White Sox fan. I'd never, <laughs> never, never go back ever in my life. It's That's amazing to me. Like everybody has an autograph story that that has turned them off of a player, right? Like it's yeah. everybody's had that experience where they tried to get an autograph and somebody was a dick, or even if they sign it, they you know maybe weren't the nicest about it, and it it somehow changes. It sours you. Yeah, it sours you. you. That might Johnny be the best Bench. one ever. It is, and it, and it did. It changed my mind forever. And I could never be a Cub fan. My whole family's White Sox fans. Uh, we've had season tickets since 81. Um, you know, I go to every opening day, obviously, the Sherman to miss it, but that was it. Dave Kingman did it. And I, this this is what gets me bummed out about it. Two, three years ago, I was in Chicago, one of the shows, and he was there. So I just, I'm like, I got to go him back. So I go him back and grab him. And the second I went to start talking to him, somebody grabbed him and said, you got to go, Dave, you got to go. He's like, hey, I'll catch up with you later. As nice as could be. And he's a big guy. He's got to be six seven. I mean, he's huge still. I mean, he used to hit those home runs on Waveland, you know. I mean, he's I mean, the guy was a great slugger for them, but he was not a nice guy. You know, it's like you're right. When you meet guys like Bo Jackson, Will Clark, Johnny Bench, Rod Carew, Reggie Jackson, oh man, they shatter your dreams because they're so nasty people. They're not nice people. You know, I, I, I think it's funny. I have the MLB telecast to watch the White Sox game or the, the preseason games, whatever they call them now. And they constantly air these commercials with Johnny Bench and his hand lotion or whatever he does. And they, there's one of them. If you see it, this guy keeps going up to him and asking him to sign stuff. I said, first of all, if you went up to Johnny Bench in public and want to talk to him, he would tell you to get the hell away from him. He doesn't care who you are. Second, if you ask him to sign anything, he would curse you out, call security, call the police i mean th these are not nice people then i see this commercial where he's acting like mr nice guy i'm like wow man people are getting the wrong impression about johnny bench yeah he's the greatest catcher of all time but at the same time he's not the greatest guy of all time and you're right man I i'm the first time meeting bo jackson 1988 bradenton florida uh they're uh the park during spring training they're all ballpark can't think of the name of it bo jackson gets off the royal steam bus he goes man get out of my face with that right now. I'm going to put this elbow right through your teeth. Oh. And he goes like this. It's like, all right. Okay. I guess I'm going to just go over here. I've interviewed Bo and he's, <laughs> he's tough. He's tough to crack. He's I, I saw him one time. He was really nice with the white Sox, and it was for, it was for a dinner. I believe, I can't think of the umpire's name, but uh, he had two kids afflicted by a rare disease. A bunch of players came together in Chicago, had a huge benefit for the, for the umpire and Bo Jackson couldn't have been nicer. I had snuck into the event, mind you. I didn't pay to get in, but he thought I did. Couldn't have been nicer to me. He was nice to everybody that day. So maybe one time, but usually guys like that, they're just not that nice, but he was a great player, fun to watch. He played for my White Sox. He was a lot of fun to watch. Um, just not a nice guy. And that's, you know, I saw Rod Carew in Laguna Beach, you know, a couple of years ago. And I'm like, Hey Rod, how you doing? Just stared at me. Like I didn't even exist. I said, Rod, how are you? Still nothing. I said, Rod, I said, you've acted like this for years. You know, I said, I played in a charity softball game with you about three years ago, and you couldn't have been nicer to me there. He looks and goes, oh, hey, hey, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Mine is Nolan Ryan. I'm a Rangers fan. Oh, and don't say that. Here's the thing, though. You never know who's having a bad day, and maybe somebody's just having a shit day, and it doesn't make them necessarily a bad guy. But right. Nolan Ryan signed a baseball, and there were a few people getting an autograph at a minor league baseball game and he was just such a dick to everybody no one ryan that, was? yeah that day no. and so like it was 
it, it, it just it tainted it for me. But on the other end of the spectrum, and and I want to get yours on this maybe, but Cal Ripken Jr., nicest human being maybe I've ever met in my entire life. Like it went from he was one of my favorite players to him completely surpassing the expectation. God, it's funny you say that. So you just flipped the switch on two people. So Ripken's really? okay. whole thing. Okay, I'll tell you the backstory on this. First of all, Ryan is really truly one of the nicest guys that I've ever met. And he was, and I've met him yeah. 20, 30 times. Nolan Ryan's last year, you'd go to the hotel, he'd sign every day. And he'd know if you went back up to him, he'd look at everybody's shoes. So we used to bring different shoes in a bag with us so we can get multiple things signed. Cause he signed one, then we change our shoes, go back up again. So he'd look at your shoes and Nolan Ryan always signed spring training, Port Charlotte, always with the Astros. I always got his autograph. Ripken, his last year or two, he'd, he'd say basically, I had this thing, go to the ballpark, line up on the first base side. If you're on that rail, I'm going to sign for you. And after batting practice and his drills, he'd walk and sign for everybody. Now, Ripken has this persona in person where he's the nicest guy. If he's being paid, the card shows and whatnot. If you meet him outside of that, he's nasty, 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 nasty. He's got a bodyguard with him at all times. He has a handler with him at all times. They are not nice people. Okay, so, and it's the opposite. Nolan Ryan doesn't do a lot of public appearances, but he's still a really nice guy. And he's always going to be, you know, Mr. Ranger, Texas Heat. I remember those last few years, anytime he picked up the ball, he might throw a no-hitter. But Ripken had this persona where everybody just thinks he's the nicest guy in the world. He's really not. He wants nothing to do with people. You know, he does it as a public thing, as a PR thing, as a nice guy, but he's not at all. And he changed, I want to say, sometime in the 90s, started staying at different hotels. The the teams usually in Chicago sit the Western or the Hyatt. He'd stay at the Ritz-Carlton or Four Seasons by himself. You know, he'd get take his own transportation. But, you know, back in the early days, he used to hang out with Eddie Murray and the other guys and the other players in the Orioles. And he stopped doing that and just started becoming himself in his own PR machine. So he's really not the guy you met that's all just BS. That's wild. That's it's yeah. so funny that the two opposite ends of the spectrum for for both of us. It's funny you mention it just randomly because they yeah. really and it's the truth. You know, and while when I've heard that about, about Nolan Ryan from a yeah. bunch of people, and that's why it always blows people away that I say that. And I'm like, again, you never know what guys are going through, and maybe maybe right. he was just having a shit day like we all have, and it, you know that's the way it, it just came across. And- or you could just be like George Brett, who was 24 seven miserable, and that's <laughs> just George Brett. He was not a nice guy, but at least you knew what you were getting. You'd never get nice George Brett. That didn't exist. Yeah. You'd only get miserable, horrible George Brett. That was it. That's all you got. Yeah. But George Brett that would play a night game and then just go right to the bars and come back at five in the morning, go do it all again the next day, the next day, the next day. Great hitter, great player, but not a nice guy. He was just miserable all the time. I think Ryan had a bad day or two. Ripken made it look nice, but it, but on the back end of him, not a nice guy. And he's still like that too. If you go to a show where he's at, I think the TriStar, he does TriStar shows or whatever. I think he does like a free photo op with the item and he's so nice about it. But man, if you meet him behind that curtain, <laughs> don't want to go near him. Not nice. Is there somebody that surpassed that for you that you just met and and they were so much better than you ever thought they would be? Uh, honestly, I, it's probably like celebrity related somewhere along yeah. the line. I think the first few times I met John Travolta, you know, and John, John's just, stars like greatly gone downhill but like those first few times meeting him i don't know if he couldn't have been nicer he might have been one of the nicest people i've ever met in my life uh, went out of his way to sign rob williams was like that super nice guy um but then you meet all the bipolar guys in the world like you know eddie van halen was bipolar gene simmons was bipolar you know eddie vetter you know most of the music guys i like to go for they they'd be on one spectrum or the other jimmy page most of the time 
I got Jimmy Page autographed one time in, in 2000, but before that he had told me to fuck off probably 30 times. We'd follow him all over, try and get his autograph. But then one day I was by myself. He was with the Black Crows. It was June of 2000. Comes back to the hotel. I'm waiting for him. His bodyguard looks and goes, you're the only one? I said, yeah. He says, he'll be off. He'll be out in a minute. He gets out of the car. He signed three albums for me. I'm like, it's greatest guitarist of all time. Eric Clapton used to be really nasty, but one time we went in the hotel and caught him drinking tea. And basically we just sat down with him and talked to him. He didn't care. It's just, I don't know, different ends of the spectrum, meeting people you get um, excited to meet and then disappointed. But I still always point back to John Travolta in the early years because he was such a nice guy. You know what? The other guy I really would throw in there is just one of the nicest people ever was John Candy. Couldn't I, I don't even know if I could have had a nicer experience. I met him one time and he was the biggest sweetheart of all time. So, um, you know, just in my autographing years, yeah. doing stuff like that, meeting people, you might get disappointed. You might not. John Candy was just a sweetheart. How much does the setting maybe factor into that? Because I imagine, I mean, there, there are certainly situations where you're around 8,000 other people that, that want the same autograph versus maybe right. running into somebody with a, a handful of people. Yeah, when we, when it was John Candy, it was two of us. Yeah. He was filming Only the Lonely with Ali Sheedy, walked out of a theater they were filming at, uh, Southport Theater in Chicago, walked out, was great, talked to us forever, uh, told us to have a great night, pleasure to meet you you know, come see my movies. Um, but I think, you know, if you go to LA and you get in this environment where you're up against a rail and you've got 50 people pushing you and another 50 people screaming or a hundred or 200 people screaming, it's a whole different situation. And I think it's uninviting to be honest with you. So when people like, you know, Natalie Portman don't come over and sign and stuff like that, the autograph people start yelling at her, <laughs> screaming at her and it's, it gets nasty. It really does. Seriously. They get yelled at and sworn at. It's, it gets bad. And the, the environment's not great. It usually well, it wasn't like that years ago, but it's gotten pretty hostile. You know, before COVID in LA, it was a really nasty place to go get autographs. I think if you go look, Billy Ellish uh, was, was um, basically, you know, yelled at, screamed at outside Jimmy Kimmel not too long ago, actually. And she basically quit signing autographs because of it. Um, because she was just so heckled so badly by people and treated so poorly. And you know what? They're not, they're not, they shouldn't be getting anything. I mean, if she signs for them, that's a bonus. They're just going to sell it anyway, most of the people out there. But I mean, the fact she didn't, she didn't. She just took a choice not to. But, you know, that's how some of them are. And that's how some of them, you know, the, the collecting environment is pretty nasty in person. If you've ever seen it, it's probably better to stay away from it. And that's kind of where I prefer now not to go near that stuff anymore. Well, what's uh, what's coming up for you? What are the plans? Obviously, I know a lot of it's dependent on just the the state of the world and and the country with everything happening, you know, COVID related. But what what uh, what's coming up for you? I've got some trips. Well, I'll be in Vegas on Friday and Saturday at Golden Silver Pond. Uh, we're doing a public day with Beckett. Um, and then after that, I think I'm doing some stuff in Arizona and Phoenix for Press Pass Collectibles. That's like the first week of August. So August 3rd through 5th or somewhere in that range, I'll be there. I'm supposed to go to Arkansas. That's going to be a drive. I'll be doing that. Uh, that's in mid-August. And then September, also Mill Creek Sports. So um, it's just different, you know. Um, not being able to fly most places is really uh, hampers the business. Not having shows is really difficult for us, but we're making the most of it. I will tell you, uh, the last month we had a business was just phenomenal. Uh, people are getting a lot of stuff certified. Like you said, the weird stuff too. Yeah. Okay? They're doing, they're doing, they're doing all the weird stuff. Steve Balboni's actually get certified. Trust me. Um, <laughs> that stuff happens in real life. So you know, we see well, that stuff. All my, my best friend growing up, his favorite player ever is Steve Balboni, by the way. <laughs> we called him sausage. <laughs> I have no idea why, but that's what we call him. Maybe somebody gave me that nickname, but that's what we would call him, Sausage Balboni. Right. He's an right. Oklahoma City 89er legend, so. 
you know, triple A baseball. Oh God. Isn't Robin Ventura too? <laughs> yeah. Oklahoma state guy. Oklahoma state. Yeah. 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 Great player. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With That's your white guy. socks. Yep. Not a good manager. Great although, player. although Nolan Ryan did show his, his, uh, filthy side when Ventura charged them out. Man, that's still one of the best. You know, I, you know, just I, real quick behind that for years, Ryan would always sign that photo. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Ventura though would never sign. Isn't it? I'm not signing it. Finally, they got him to do it like three, four years ago for charity. And now he'll just sign it. He doesn't care. But for years he wouldn't sign it. He has a headlock photo or whatever. Yeah. He said, I'm not signing it. I got a good story for you. I, I interviewed Robin about that once and I asked him like, what the hell went down? Like, you know, why, why did that happen? Yeah. And he was actually really cool about it. He's like, it was a completely reactionary type thing. I didn't think about it at all until I got about halfway there. And he said, it, it went across my mind halfway there, like, oh shit, what am I doing? But he said, I had already committed to it. So he's like, I had to, I just had to finish it and go get my ass serious? kicked. Oh yeah. He so said- he pretty much knew he what he was getting into when he yeah, committed. Yeah, he said that he just reacted at first, and then after he had reacted, it hit him. I probably shouldn't be doing this, but it was too late, and he had already kind of committed to charging the mound, so he just went forward. It's truly a shame. He gets knocked for that, but yeah. the guy was a clutch hitter. He was a great college player. Greatest maybe great ever college baseman. player, yeah. Yeah, he was a great third baseman. Uh, he was uh, probably one of the best clutch hitters for the White Sox in their history. And he was a clutch hitter for the Mets too. He was a good player for the Mets. He was just a, he was a lousy manager, you know, nice guy, lousy manager. I've still to this day, can't figure out if you ever ask him again, why he chose to go manage the White Sox. He had done nothing, no minor league coaching, zero, nothing. And I, I just think he wanted to get in the game somehow. And Jerry Reinsdorf said, please come manage my team. And he did. And it was a huge mistake. He was terrible. Maybe he just thought Ozzie Guillen made it look so easy that, uh, it would, he did. Be Keen was a good. Keen was a good manager, but he's he got a you know he, when you support the uh, Venezuelan government and say nice things about bad people, people will be like, well, you're gonna lose your job. So, and he did. I think the White Sox traded him to the Marlins. I think they, didn't they trade him? I think they did. I can't even remember. And the Sox got something or whatever, yeah. and then Guillen went to manage eight games and got fired. So. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Steve, I, I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun. Pleasure. If you're ever in the uh, Oklahoma area, don't be a stranger and we'll uh, tell you the we'll truth. I might be coming through there in September. That might be a road trip. So um, uh, if, if I looked at my navigation, right, if Tucson through that area, we go through there. So I'll let you know. All right. If you make a pit stop, holler at me and we'll uh, we'll get together, get dinner, drinks or whatever. Sure. I will do that. All right, Steve. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, man. I appreciate it very much. Stay safe and uh, we'll talk soon. You too. Thanks. That was Steve Grad, the guy from Pawn Stars Autograph Authenticator, also with Beckett Authentication. And we appreciate Steve jumping on the podcast. That's it for this episode of the Colby Daniels Podcast. As always, I appreciate you guys listening. Please subscribe to and rate the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with me at Colby underscore Daniels on Twitter, Colby.Daniels on Instagram. I'm excited for this week. We have live sports back, baseball and basketball. I am geeked. Thank you guys. Love you guys. Stay safe, and I will talk to you next time. The podcast is over.